0: Well, Happy New Year. I got to tell you, uh, I'm not uh, all that sorry to see the last year go. It's, it's kind of tough. It's tough personally, it's tough professionally, tough for the church, it's tough culturally. And uh, I think we all come into 2023 sort of, you know, wondering about the same thing, same, same basic question is there hope? Is there hope for this year? Is there hope for our world? Is there hope for our culture? Is there there hope for us? We have been talking about mission here, and for the church to be talking about mission really requires that we be able to impact the world around us. And that's a little scary right now because the world is pretty dark. It's a pretty dark place. As a matter of fact, our present cultural narrative is really a tapestry of deception. We've come to a rather startling conclusion here lately, which is that in our culture, in our society, in our media and and, and all the other places that we get information, we now have sort of crossed this threshold where we hear lies and deception more often than we hear truth. Now, I would like to say that, that that's just me, you know, exaggerating for effect. I would like to say that that's hyperbole, but it's it's really not. If we look at the lens through which all of the information we get has been filtered. If we look at the worldviews through which all of this has been filtered, it's all been tainted by this deception, all been tainted by lies. What does that mean for us? To exist in a society where most of the information you get is to one degree or another untrue. And, And what does it mean when government and media and social media and our cultural institutions and and many of our educational institutions, even our dictionaries, are changing the meaning of things to reflect the lies instead of the truth. And isn't it scary when some of those lies are even coming from the church? It's all spin, it's all narrative, it's all propaganda, and it's all supported essentially by suppressing any dissent, which is always dangerous when you come to the point as a culture where the story that you want to tell is so fragile that you can't allow anybody else to tell a different story or your story will be disrupted. And so from COVID to climate, the way that we define life, the way that we define identity, the way that we define gender and morality, the way that we define truth itself is under attack by deception. It is all narrative. It bears no relationship to reality or to godliness. As you can tell, I'm starting with the bad news. If we reject it, if we reject this story, reject this narrative, we are dismissed as hateful, calloused, bigoted, and cruel, and in many cases, we are regarded as less than human and therefore disposable within the society. How on earth did we come to be sitting in such darkness? It's kind of like... uh, when I'm on my iPad or maybe watching television in the evening, my wife comes home and says, flips on lights and says, what are you doing sitting here in the dark? Well, it wasn't dark when I sat down. That's what's happened around us. It wasn't dark when we sat down. It wasn't dark when we stopped paying attention. But each little thread weaves into the tapestry until they all come together and the mesh is so fine that not much light is let through anymore. And aside from grousing about it and hoping maybe for some political solutions, the reality is that Christians have mostly continued as if nothing has changed. In fact, the primary response of the church to all of this darkness has been isolation. We pull back into ourselves, into our safe places. We consolidate our numbers, and we just hold on, hoping, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe Jesus will come back before we all die of natural causes. There's a rumor in town, apparently, that we are a dying church. I find that ironic. I don't agree with that, of course. But then I look at you as a church with a different metric. I, I understand where that's coming from, right? Because for decades now, the only metric that we've had to, to evaluate the health of a church is numbers. How many people are there? How many dollars come in to the offering box? That, those are the only metrics that we have. And when you look at those metrics, yeah, we're not doing so hot. guess what? Almost nobody's doing hot by those metrics. If we apply those metrics to the church in America, most congregations are technically dying. Now, over the years in ministry, I've seen a lot of churches get desperate about finding ways to keep their doors open. Shockingly, Few of them have gotten desperate enough to follow Jesus. Maybe we just need to get desperate enough to do that. I uh, I have been chopping wood this year. I had some wood, firewood left over from the last couple of years, logs that weren't processed, and so. Mostly for exercise, because we've been buying firewood, but mostly for exercise, I have some firewood out there that I cut up, and I put on the chopping block, and I hand chop, which is difficult, right? Hardwoods. I mean, I used to chop wood all the time in Colorado, but that was all pine, nice straight grain pine, splits on the first chop. It's not like that. It's a lot of work, but it's good exercise and get out and Do a little bit at a time. Now, the chickens have learned that whenever we start moving wood around, there's bugs underneath it, right? So you start moving wood, and they're like, oh, Schmorgsborg, here we go. And so now, whenever I'm out chopping wood, I have this audience of chickens all around. And they're kind of obnoxious, and they get underfoot. They're not paying attention to what's going on. Sometimes chunks of log go flying. As I'm doing this, I'm there with the axe and the chopping block, and there's chickens around. What's going through my mind is different than what's going through their mind. Right? Now, I'm I'm only raising chickens for eggs. I have not processed meat chickens for years now. So they have no reason to associate that chopping block with the things that I associate the chopping block with with when I'm thinking about chickens. But there's still a part of me that feels guilty that they're watching me. There's a part of me that just wants to say, girls, there's something I need to tell you. Well, folks, there's something I need to tell the church. We are near the chopping block. The axe is coming down. And it's, it's, it's not because our budget's small, and it's not because our numbers are small. Because honest to God, and this is not just something preachers say, honest to God, Jesus could change that tomorrow for us. That is, that is totally within his wheelhouse. And if he wants to do that, he will do that. The problem is, the darkness around us has grown, and we have forgotten how to shine our light into it. That's what we need to be desperate about. That's where the axe is coming down. We have not been content here. Most Christians, most Christians have no natural fear of the church's demise. As long as the church continues to serve their purpose, as long as it continues to make them feel comfortable, as long as it meets their expectations, they'll go along fine, even if that church is not fulfilling its mission in the world. But I think we've established at this point that the church without the mission of Jesus Christ is not even the church. It is in fact dead already. So for us to be talking about the church dying is irrelevant if the church isn't accomplishing the mission of Jesus because it's already there and they just don't know it yet. I've made a you know, really conscious decision here to make it harder for you to be in this place and not serve the mission of Jesus Christ. And we've paid a price for that. We've paid a price for that expectation, for that demand. And the price has been high. So why do we do it? Because as long as the darkness of the world is met with the apathy of the church, there is no hope for either. And I want to live in a world where there's hope. If, in the face of this growing darkness, we continue just to function as we always have, we will have fashioned a comfortable oasis for people who just like church. But how are we supposed to make a difference? Well, this is all the bad news. Let me tell you the good news. The good news is that Jesus entered into a remarkably similar culture and religious context. The world that he entered into was so much like what we're facing right now. Look, the Roman Empire, for all the, for all the times that we herald the Greco-Roman world, for all the sense in which our Western culture is founded upon Greco-Roman ideals... The reality of the Roman Empire is that it was a pit. It was a pit of immorality and violence. It was an ugly place to be. There is no social justice. It was, it was a terrible cultural context. It was immoral. It was sexually immoral. It was, it, it was, it was civically unjust. It was brutally violent. It was ugly in so many ways that that makes our culture pale by comparison. No matter how much you think things are going to hell in a handbasket, the Roman Empire has us outdone. And in the face of all of this, what is happening in the context of Judaism? Well, the Jews have withdrawn into themselves. They're hidden away. Their their faith is, is, is amongst themselves. And they're either arguing amongst themselves about who's got the better version of their faith or sometimes working overtime to accommodate Roman culture, to to compromise their faith in ways that make it almost unrecognizable. So what does Jesus do coming into this cultural context? Well, Matthew 4 and 17 says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Kingdom of heaven. And what is that kingdom? Well, it is is the place. It is the place where the poor in spirit are blessed. It is a place where the persecuted are joyful. It is a place where the meek inherit the earth. And this brings us to the Jesus mission strategy number four, change the narrative. You don't like the story? Is, is the story in the world, the story that the world is telling, is it, is it weaving that tapestry of lies? Is the story of religion as we have known it kind of missing the point? Then tell a different story. We really need to learn from this strategy right now. Because because the world around us is nurtured on lies. It needs truth in order to experience healing. But it's no longer looking to the church, no longer looking to Christians to find that truth. In fact, they think they know our whole message and that our message is tapped out that there's nothing here to be found. Here's what I need you to know. The gospel is still that story. gospel is still this radical, crazy, upside-down kingdom story. And how easily we forget that, how easily we get lulled into complacency about that. But the gospel is revolutionary. It upsets everything. Understand that the kingdom that Jesus introduced defies both culture and religion. It leaves nothing unscathed. In fact, he preaches repentance to both, which is really kind of remarkable when you think about it. That these people, these, these Jews that come out to listen to Jesus teach, he preaches repentance to them. What does repentance mean? It means completely change the direction that you're going. Jesus doesn't say, y- you know, you need to tone things up. You fix things here or there. You know, this is some moral issues. We're work. No, change directions. Do something different. Enter into this kingdom ideal that I'm sharing with you, and it's going to be completely different from, from what you have thought it was. This idea of repentance so remarkable. You know, often uh, through my ministry career, I've gotten away from giving regular invitations at the end of my sermons. And I've often been critiqued for that. Sometimes rather sharply critiqued for that. And here's the thing. Almost universally, the people who have criticized me for that are the same people who say, I would never go forward for one of those public invitations. That is not going to be me. But I want it to be happening in the room because it makes me feel like we're fulfilling our mission to Christ. To have the preacher inviting people, sinners, to come and repent. I've been thinking lately that maybe we need some invitations from time to time. But not for the sinners out there in the world, for the sinners in the room. We need repentance for us. We need to change how we function. Jesus doesn't just come to the Romans and say, look how broken your culture is. You need to fix all this. He comes to the believers. He comes to the people who are at synagogue. He comes to the people who are taking time on a weekday to go out and hear a rabbi give a speech. He says, repent. Change your direction. Do it different. Let's do something different together. The world is broken and dark and sinful and if we're going to lead the world then we have to follow jesus first he says in matthew 5 says you are the salt of the earth but if the salt loses its saltiness how can it be made salty again it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot you are the light of the world a town built on a hill cannot be hidden Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This really brings us to, to Jesus' mission strategy number five, which is raise expectations. Jesus not only comes to the world and offers to be salt and light to us, He actually expects his followers to become salt and light to the world. He goes on to say, look, the reality of the situation is you have no part in this new kingdom I'm describing to you unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees. I can't even begin to tell you what a radical statement that is. For these people who look to the Pharisees as the most pious, most religious, most faithful people in all of Jewish culture, ones who are completely devoted to prayer, completely devoted to the Word. He says, your righteousness better be beyond that. And then he goes into all this discussion of the law and he describes all the ways in which the Pharisees have been technically fulfilling the law but are violating the spirit of the law. They're not actually doing what God is calling them to do. And he tells the people to renounce hatred, to be sexually pure, to be faithful, to be truthful, even to love their enemies. Calls them to righteousness. And righteousness is a call to the absolute godly morality. That's incredible. That's intimidating. In the face of immoral culture, in the face of a largely compromised religion, Jesus says, you live for righteousness. Now, why is that so important? Well, on the one hand, it sort of sets the stage for grace, right? As we think about comparing ourselves to the righteousness of God, we, we become immediately apparent, aware of our a need for grace. But it's also about our witness. If we are committed to the righteousness of God, our witness to the world is transformed. Jesus calls upon believers to be the incarnation of light. To be in the flesh the light and salt of the gospel. And we've already talked about one of Jesus' clear missional priorities is to bring the light into the darkness. What's really remarkable here is He doesn't just bring the light. He commissions us to be the light. And that echoes down through the ages right into this room. Jesus calls upon you to be His light, not just to receive His light, but to reflect it in a way that the world can perceive Him through us. Which is why the good news about the kingdom is matched with this call to repentance. Because if we're going to reflect that light, we're going to have to clean the mirror, we're going to have to get some stuff out of the way. And so we repent the world, we repent our isolation. We repent our apathy because, as Jesus says, a light that is hidden is is not a light at all. It has no point. It has no meaning. Now, I tell you all of this, hopefully not to discourage you. I certainly don't want to do that. As a matter of fact, I want to tell you that there is incredible hope for the world Incredible hope for this church. Incredible hope for you and your household. In this year, in 2023, there is hope. It is abundant. It is overflowing. And all we have to do is reacquaint ourselves with the radical nature of the gospel. Because that's where the hope is at. Jesus says in Matthew 7, verses 7 and 8, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open to you for everyone who asks, receives and the one who seeks, find and the one who knocks, the door will be open. I want to I share with you a couple of, so much truth in scripture it, it hurts. <laughs> but there's two truths, two truths from the word this morning that that I want to impress upon you, they the things that, that I'm sure we know, but I want to impress upon you the fact that these truths can renovate the church and revolutionize the world. Oh yes. You know, we, we sort of lose track of the, the The wonder of the word, the wonder of the gospel, the wonder of the kingdom, the wonder of this ministry actually has the power to do that, has the power to to bring the church in America back to life, has the power to create a great awakening in our culture. What are those truths? Oh, they're so simple. That's probably why we miss it. Number one truth, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is our king. He has absolute authority. He is the source of our mission. He is the source of all truth. He is the source of all life. And he is the source of purpose. And secondly, Jesus is worthy. Not only does Jesus deserve our worship and deserve our obedience from us, but oddly enough, when we are worshiping him and obeying him, it is weirdly self-serving. Because the truth is that losing ourselves to Christ, even though it's counterintuitive, is the only way that we actually find the life that we were looking for in the first place. Ultimately, there is infinite hope for the future, infinite hope for the culture, infinite hope for the church, but it requires that you and I repent of the darkness that has crept in. And I, I don't want you to be thinking this morning about this as a guilty sermon. I know when we talk about repentance, we think about shame and guilt. I'm talking about shame and guilt. I have no interest in your shame and guilt this morning. What I do have an interest in is us shedding the burden of the lies that the culture is constantly trying to speak into our heart. To get rid of it, to cut ourselves off from it, and enjoy the freedom, the liberation that Christ has to offer to us. We need to repent the lie that Jesus is not enough. The enemy so wants us to believe this, whether it's about your personal happiness or your personal fulfillment, your your marriage, your family, worldly gain, even the viability of the church. We want to think there's Jesus and then there's what? What are we gonna to add to Jesus? Jesus and what? Jesus and nothing. Jesus is enough. We need to repent the false dichotomy between the spiritual and secular concerns. This lie that this this part of my life, my spirituality, my church, my faith, that's about Jesus. And all these other parts, my work, my school, my family, my money, my time, my play, those are all other concerns, those are, those are secular, those are worldly concerns. Jesus is concerned with what you do with everything. So everything is a spiritual concern. Everything comes under his lordship. We need to repent the idolization of human religion. Our mission is not to buttress comfortable church traditions for the comfortably churched. Our mission is to be a kingdom community where Jesus reigns. We need to repent the filtered application of Jesus' commands. This is one of the dangers of human religions. We allow our practices, what we do, what we've always done, to define what faith, what the church is. And if that includes things that Jesus has commanded, that's great. But if it excludes things that Jesus has commanded, we sort of give ourselves ecclesiastical permission to ignore those parts of Jesus' message. We are not doing that anymore. If Jesus said it, that's what we're about. We need to repent the spiritualization of mediocrity. Now, I have to admit, I have fallen into this trap quite a bit myself lately because I'm busy and I'm tired, and it's easy to start making excuses for myself and say, well, this is good enough. This is good enough. Now, I'm not talking about when we've made our best effort and we're out of time and out of money and out of resources and we got to go with what we got. I'm talking about where we stop short of what we could do and we decide we've gone far enough. We have this sort of weird application of grace in American Christianity where We do things halfway, and then because Jesus is graceful, it's all okay. And that means by doing things halfway, we're actually reveling in the grace of Jesus. And that makes us more spiritual, more pious. Um, I just want to caution you, that's completely bogus. That is a lie. The reality is, Jesus is worthy. So, I'm not going to do everything, and what I do is going to be riddled with my human errors and mistakes. But if I'm doing it, and I believe it's what Jesus has called me to do, I'm going to do it as if I'm doing it for Jesus and not for men. Mediocrity is not more pious, it's not more spiritual. Sometimes grace is just our code word for lazy. We need to repent the surrogacy of your light. It's an amazing calling to to be the light of Christ. And and it's amazing because no one here, not me, not you, none of us are excused from this calling. None of us gets to say, you could be the light. The minister could be the light. The, The church leaders could be the light. Those ministry leaders could be the light. I'll even fund them so they can be the light. No, Jesus says, you're the light. You're the salt. Folks, Jesus is the only hope for the world. And we are the only delivery vehicle he's left behind. There is hope. There's incredible hope. And it is manifest when we, through Jesus Christ, choose to be the salt and light of the gospel. What does light do? Light reveals and scatters the darkness. A lot of the lies that we're told today are about false dangers. We're supposed to be scared of things all the time. Most of the things that we're supposed to be scared of are not worth being scared of. Most of the things that we should be wary of Are so cloaked, so hidden, so ignored that we don't think about them. The light exposes false dangers and it reveals real ones. It replaces lies with truth. And so our mission as a church is not just to be a place where the truth is heard, but is to be a people who speak that truth into the dark. And the light provides a clear path forward. And that's what we're talking about, right? When we talk about hope in the new year, we just need a clear path forward. We just need to know where to go from here. We need to know where to invest this faith, where where to engage this life. The light provides us with a clear path to do just that. And I know this is naive. I know that it's going to be tempting for you to leave here this morning dismissing the things I've said as just things that preachers say. Because at the end of the day it still does all come back down to the numbers. That's that's the stuff that matters. I'm telling you, no. I'm not just saying this as a preacher, and I'm not just saying it. I'm not just saying it because this is what we say when we get together. I'm saying it because I need to believe it more. I'm saying it because you need to believe it more. Jesus is Lord, and Jesus is worthy. And as crazy as it sounds, as oversimplified as I'm making it, the truth is, we just follow Jesus. We just depend on Him. And the world will be able to depend on us to be salt and light.